Welcome to Order from Ashes. I'm Thanasi Kambanis, and today I'm joined by Sam Heller and Aaron Lund, and we're here to talk about cross-border aid into Syria. Uh, Sam, Aaron, thanks for coming on the podcast. Hey, thanks for having us. Thank you. So as best I understand, mostly through following the writings and tweets from both of you, there's a July 10th deadline at the UN to decide whether cross-border aid can be allowed into Syria uh, after the summer. Uh, and I actually am at this at this point am somewhat confused as to what's what's being debated at the UN, what uh, uh, is left of cross-border aid and 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 how crucial it is. Um, so maybe can you two start by taking us through a little bit of where where we are with cross-border aid in Syria and and why it's important and what's what's being fought over at this stage? Sure. So uh I'll, I'll go first. Um, the, the, lots of Syrians need aid, right? Because it, there's been a 10 year war. Uh, there's, uh, the, the economy is in tatters and you have, I think, 13 million or something like that. Um, people who are in need of UN or, or NGO aid in some form. But a lot of those people live outside of the Syrian government controlled territories. And that's always been the case because those areas were worst hit during the war because Assad has been bombing them and they're, you know, they're poor and they're war torn and so forth. So since 2014, the Security Council has arranged for a special exception uh, to the normal order of things when it comes to humanitarian aid, which is that the Syrian government or the government of the country where aid operations, UN aid operations take place, uh, you know, the government decides who gets to go across the border, who gets to do what. But that didn't work in Syria because the Assad regime weaponized humanitarian aid. It, it weaponized access to humanitarian aid. It didn't allow convoys to go into rebel-controlled areas. It didn't go allow... Uh, um, aid groups to to work with with communities that weren't loyal to the Syrian government. So uh, you had a, an enormous crisis brewing by 2013, 2014 already, uh, and hunger being used as a weapon of war. And at that point, the Security Council issued a resolution that basically allows the United Nations to use specific designated crossings at the border. Uh, to go into Syria and deliver aid without the permission of the Syrian government, and that's what's called cross-border aid because you cross a border. And these are these are Syrian borders that are not actually controlled by the government of exactly. Syria. Exactly. That's why because the UN needs to be the authority to allow people to to cross it. Exactly. Out. Because if the Syrian government controlled that border, it could block it anyway, right? Because it just just physically be in the way of the convoy. So originally there were four of these crossings in the in the resolution in 2014, and then step by step that number has decreased. One of them in in the south to Jordan was recaptured by the Syrian government in 2018. So that's you know defunct for that reason. Um, and then two others, one to Turkey and one to Iraq, to the Kurdish controlled areas in northeastern Syria, have also been taken out of the resolution as it is renewed annually. Uh, or it's some, in some cases biannually, um, by Russia, basically, because Russia allowed this to happen in 2014 uh, on the understanding that the resolution wouldn't be permanent. It would be an exception that would have to be renewed with, with the support of the Security Council. And since Russia has a veto in the Security Council, that gives Russia final say every year. So Russia has basically picked off crossings until there's now only one of them left called Babel Hawa which goes into the Idlib province from 
in northwestern Syria from the Turkish border, from, from southern Turkey. And that's what it's about now. And what is and what is Russia's case for uh, ne- you know reducing the number of crossings through which aid can go to millions of hungry people? Is this an overt just uh, uh, doing the bidding of their allies in Damascus, or is there is there more to the the Russian position on this? Well, I think I mean basically it's that uh, they think Assad should be in control of Syria uh, or the Syrian government, and he runs the Syrian government. And uh, they they want this this uh, as they see it abnormal exception to end at some point, but also it's an issue that has given them a lot of leverage because it keeps popping up every year since 2014, and then you have to renew it, and then you have to talk to Russia, and Russia tells you what it wants in return. And for the first few years, they didn't demand anything in particular in return, or at least it wasn't a big issue. But from 2017 onward, when Assad was in, back in control of most of Syria. Um, they've been basically saying we need to wind up this this uh, this cross border mechanism. We don't like it. It's you know suspect. Aid is diverted to terrorist groups or to opposition groups, uh, and we want changes to it or we want it gone. And step by step, they've removed it. And there's been big battles in the Security Council about this, with uh, with Russia vetoing resolution after resolution, and because Russia never has a majority on this issue, because most of the council tends to vote with uh, the the Western-led camp. Russia basically has China and maybe another one or two other countries on its side, uh, depending on the composition. But they also. just, they don't need a majority. They, they, no, they, they, they can, do, can they just can exercise veto, their veto. A veto of one is, is enough. China tends to sort of chip in. When Russia made its mind up, then China votes the same way. They let Russia take the lead, but but they're not sort of driving events like Russia does, you know? Well, and 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 I feel like you've started to say this, but but you know what's so so July tenth is the deadline, and what's at stake here? Is this is this millions of people who will suddenly start going hungry if this border crossing is closed to aid? Is this a case where if the crossing is closed, it becomes easier for the regime to to retake those areas from the rebel groups that still hold them, uh, or? You know what? Like what? What changes if this crossing is closed to cross-border aid? Well, basically all of those things, I think, uh, because what ends on July 10, if unless there's an agreement in the Security Council, is all the UN aid going across that border? Because the UN agencies, by you know their own statutes, cannot go across that border without Assad's permission, unless this resolution exists to allow them to do that. So they can't send aid, they can't send funding to the NGOs inside Syria. There are, you know, they fund doctors, they fund schools, they fund things that keep society running in these areas. And all of that will end. Um, and also, you, I mean, a lot of the aid is not, uh, you know, doesn't enter Syria through the UN. You have a lot of NGOs working there, whether, you know, you have also Turkish organizations like the Turkish Red Crescent and others. But... A lot of the aid is UN, especially a lot of the food aid, which is very important in this area, of course. Um, and uh, even the the NGOs working in this area, um, I think Sam can elaborate on this as well. Uh, even the NGOs in this area depend a lot on the UN. You know, it's 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 uh, capabilities uh, logistically or in terms of coordination and planning and you know, needs assessment and these kinds of things. Do they need the cross-border authority as well, or can they keep operating even if they're... For, I mean, if you ask the Syrian government, they certainly need it, but it, they don't ask the Syrian government, but they don't tend to. But um, a lot of them are 
um, uncomfortable with working in a place like Idlib, which is run by Tahrir al-Sham, which is a sort of an offshoot or a breakout faction from Al-Qaeda, which is terrorist designated by the UN and a lot of the other countries. Uh, so it's very easy to go into Idlib with aid and then get tangled up in, in counterterrorism sanctions, which for an aid group that depends on donations can be fatal. So a lot of them feel that they don't want to work in this area or they can't afford to uh, because of those risks, the legal risks and the security risks also. They need the UN to do it. Uh, but but a lot of them will, of course, continue to, to, to go across the border in collaboration with the Turkish government or with other organizations that continue to do it uh, independently. Uh, it's just that it will be a lot less effective, I think. Sam? No, and well, it seems that... Uh... So if the uh, cross-border authorization is lost for this last uh, this last crossing at Babel Hawa, uh, it seems that the arrangement will much more closely resemble what we have now at uh, Samalka or Fishhabur, um, which is the main crossing that, I, that is used uh, from uh, Iraq's Kurdistan region to Syria's northeast, uh, where NGOs are able to operate, uh, you know, outside UN auspices. Um, so you will, uh, in all likelihood, you know, continue to see uh, aid coming into Syria's northwest uh, from uh, international NGOs, local organizations and charities, uh, some, you know, regional, national organizations. Turkey obviously has uh, uh, aid institutions. Um but the consensus among humanitarians seems to be that uh, what uh, kind of what aid response to the Northwest persists uh, will be uh, substantially reduced quantitatively. Uh, there will be less aid just because uh, they will lose the UN's contribution, uh, both in terms of just the material contribution, but then also just uh, the UN's uh, ability to. Uh, to procure in huge volumes to arrange the, the logistics uh, that are necessary for um, the amount of aid that is needed in this area. Uh, and then the continued response will be uh, will additionally be just worse qualitatively. It will just be much more um, discombobulated uh, and uh, less organized uh, than now exists. How many millions of people are we talking about in, in the affected area? So I think uh, it seems that there are uh, of, uh, let's see, a little, of more than uh, uh, 4 million Syrians uh, who live in the opposition-controlled Northwest. Uh, so that includes uh, Idlib uh, and adjacent areas, which is uh, under uh, Hayat Tahrir Sham's control, um, as well as adjacent sections of the northern Aleppo countryside, which is controlled by uh, kind of more uh, more factions more closely linked with Turkey. Um, so you have a little more than or more than uh, four million Syrians across uh, all these areas. Um, more than two point seven million of them uh, are internally displaced. Uh, and are thus uh, especially vulnerable. Um, 1.6 million uh, live in camps uh, and are thus, again, you know, uh, particularly dependent on humanitarian aid. Um, 2.4 million, um, again, of uh, more than four, 
uh, are now are now reached uh, by this UN coordinated uh, cross border aid response. So, without Babel Hawa, then that falls away. Um, for food aid, for example, I mean, this is an area that uh, is, uh, you know, this is something that I encountered working on uh, my recent paper for the Century Foundation on um, on food insecurity and hunger across Syria. Uh, this is a corner of the country that is uh, especially food insecure, uh, in large part just because it is so densely packed with displaced people, many of whom have, you know, exhausted whatever means they had to support themselves, to cope with their circumstances, um, who, you know, live in camps, who cannot, uh, who cannot earn to support themselves. Uh, and then so this is a, an area that is especially uh, food insecure. It is for now, uh, you know, reached cross-border. Um, and then there are uh, apparently like 1.4 million people in this area who are reached cross-border with uh, uh, food aid as part of this uh, UN-headed response. NGOs have come out and said that, you know, if they lose that uh, that UN contribution, they will be able to, con- to compensate partially, uh, but then only a, only a, a small part. Um, so they estimate that, you know, that they will... Uh, I think be able to meet about uh, three hundred thousand uh, people of that uh, of that one point four million, and that uh, so more than a million people will be uh, who now currently depend on this food aid uh, will just be left out, will be in the cold. Well, so some of the rhetoric that I've heard from Western. Uh, officials at the UN. So these are there are different European and and U.S. Uh, diplomats at the UN. They've described this as a humanitarian emergency in the making, or or a, a, a catastrophe, or a, a, a like a major uh, a harm to to millions of people. So can you can you two tell us your in your own assessment how how big of a, so, so I mean these numbers that you're that you're you're both uh, putting out are, you know, they're daunting and 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 terrible when you start thinking about you know 1.4 million people who might be you know the sort of anodyne term food insecure. Uh, so we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people or millions of people who might start going hungry um, and who will presumably be subjected to a renewed armed assault by the government that's been trying to retake the areas that they're in. Um, so. Um, and on the other hand, I've, uh, we've talked about this a lot. Um, humanitarians especially have a track record, including in, especially in Syria, of, uh, of, of sort of raising the alarm with the worst possible case scenario at every juncture. Um, and, and some of the times those, those dire predictions have been uh, true. Some of the times they've been maybe exaggerated. Um, and so I, I, I want... In in your assessment, how big how big of a of an emergency and a big how big of a human risk are we facing here if uh, Russia uh, single handedly decides to close this uh, border crossing uh, on July tenth? And maybe we'll start with you, Aaron. 
So I, I, I agree that there is a, a track record of humanitarian organizations sort of playing up problems because that's their job after all to, to respond to those problems. And, uh, uh, but also they are playing up this problem because it is really severe. And I think this time this is really serious. Uh, this is the last point of UN access to this area, which is the, the most uh, deprived, the most vulnerable area of Syria. Uh, which is saying something given the state of Syria in general, you know. So I think this is really, really serious. And what they've been doing already is, I mean, the UN organizations and NGOs as well, is to rush aid in and pre-position things in, in stockpiles in Syria or just across the border where it can be brought into Syria easily with Turkish uh, assistance and so forth. Um so they hope to have a supply ready if, you know, the the border is closed. Um, and maybe they can go on until September or something. Uh, but eventually this will be a very, very, very severe crisis, I think. And you mentioned this because the, the, um, the political effects here are also significant. Because if you have this kind of crisis, it will probably destabilize the arrangements that have kept... Idlib, not peaceful, but but semi, uh, you know, compared to what it could be, reasonably calm for some time. Since uh, March 2020, there's been a ceasefire that has held more or less, you know, uh, and that is to do with Turkey and Russia, their negotiations, which is also a big part of this process, even though it's it's kind of plays out in, in secret behind closed doors. So if those arrangements were to collapse and Russia and Turkey start battling it out or, you know, their proxies do, uh, the needs will shoot up immediately. It's not just about keeping the current situation going. It's also about what happens if you have a crisis, a military crisis uh, as a result of this or infighting in Idlib or, you know, you can have a lot of problems that stem from this decision. And then you'll need UN uh, support to to deal with that, and we've seen that in the past. Whenever there's you know major fighting flares, as it did uh, in in winter 2019 2020, uh, for example, then immediately you had you know spiking humanitarian needs, and then you had to rush in a lot of supplies just to get that into sort of stabilize that situation because people who have nothing end up running for their lives and you have to find them and feed them basically. And unless you have these capabilities that are now working in Syria uh, through the cross-border mechanism, then that will be really, really hard. So I think it is really serious this time. And you, uh, I mean, there will be exaggerations, there will be warnings that won't you know, pan out, fortunately, if, if the worst happens. And I think some of the statistics regarding population figures, for example, are not probably very reliable. Uh, but all that said, I think it is really, really serious. Well, so let's talk a little bit about um, about the negotiations themselves and, and about what happens afterwards. Uh, I think I saw some some uh, some things you were saying, Sam, about Russia's position here, um, and I'm interested in, in, in maybe you explaining uh, how you, like, what you've learned about how Russia is approaching this negotiation. Um, and and I'm also interested in the sort of longer term thing here, because because as I read it, Russia is basically saying our clients or our partners, the Assad regime, have have won this war and we are no longer going to permit this temporary arrangement um, that was that was uh, put in place for a 
a, a transitional period when the outcome of the war was uncertain. Um, and so from their view, uh, uh, continuing this cross-border aid is simply deferring the moment of reckoning, which of course they're happy about because it's their, you know, their client uh, uh, winning. Um, but is, 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 that, is that a fair read? And, and maybe I'm asking you too many questions all at once, uh, but, but let's, uh, let's go to you, Sam. Yeah, I mean, so I think a large part of the impetus for a, uh, a piece that I, I wrote recently for uh, this organization, uh, Dawn's magazine, Democracy in Exile, was uh, as, um, at least as I saw it, sort of a corrective um, regarding uh, Russia's position here, which I think has been uh, seemingly mischaracterized. Uh, in a lot of reporting and uh, analysis uh, on this issue, um, I think that since uh, you know since earlier this year, um, there's been uh, people have been uh, kind of pointing to to Russian statements and saying that the uh, that the Russians uh, seem you know intent uh, on vetoing uh, renewal of the cross border mandate. Um, you know that they are uh, that they are dead set on this. Uh, I don't think that that is the case. Um, you know, if you look at uh, the Russians' uh, periodic interventions uh, at you know Security Council briefings uh, on humanitarian conditions across Syria, um, and then certainly some of their uh, you know more recent. Uh, uh, Kind of media uh, a comment uh, at you know uh, press availabilities etc um, on this issue. Um, they don't seem to be signaling that they are um, you know that they are uh, determined uh, to veto this and to uh, you know to bring to an end uh, the cross border author- authorization. Um, they seem immovable uh, on a. Uh, Proposal by uh, from the West to uh, to re-add several uh, crossings, including you know Baba Saleme and uh, Ayarobia. Um, so that's with with Turkey and then with Syria's uh, northeast. Uh, but on the maintenance of Babel Hawa, you know, I mean, they uh, they you know they tend to kind of. Uh, to list this, what are the things? What are the things they want uh, in exchange for allowing this to continue? Well, what they indicate is that uh, are they, are they're looking for Western concessions. Would, and again, so that is the other thing that on which I wanted to kind of uh, attempt to offer a corrective because I think there's been a lot of speculation about what they seem to be seeking uh, from uh, from the West. You know whether that is a, a sanctions relief, et cetera, which I, I think has been at issue in uh, past renewals. But uh, in this instance, you know the the point that they sanctions relief for Syria or sanctions relief for Russia for Syria for Syria. Um, but in this instance, then the point that they continue to return to uh, is some sort of uh, advance progress on. Uh, cross-line uh, aid to Idlib. Um, so cross-line, that would be from areas of government control 
uh, you know, adjacent to Idlib into this area. Um, they seem to, they, they focus in particular on a, a stalled uh, convoy uh, that has been under discussion um, that would cross um, through the West Aleppo countryside into, um, into a, uh, a section of, of West Aleppo that is adjacent to Idlib uh, and that the Russians and the Turks uh, have failed to, uh, uh, so far, uh, to successfully broker. Um, apparently because of resistance by Hayat Tahrir Sham to the participation uh, in various capacities of the uh, Syrian Arab Red Crescent, uh, which Tahrir Sham considers um, you know, an appendage of uh, the government in Damascus. Uh, so that is what the Russians really harp on. If I'm to translate that into uh, sort of simpler uh, or, 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 or sort of wider vantage point, what I, what I understand you'd be saying is the Russians want to see more movement of aid within Syria from government to, to opposition areas before they're going to continue to allow foreign aid to come in from across the outside border. Um, and understandably, all the, the, the fiefdom of, uh, of Hayat Tahrir al-Sham doesn't want, to, doesn't want to allow aid to come in from Damascus because ultimately that weakens uh, its authority, whereas if it allows aid to come in from abroad, it cements its authority over that area. Uh, and so that, 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 that actually, that's very interesting, uh, sort of long-term state-building project, competing state-building projects, right, where the, Damascus wants to reassert its uh, sort of state authority over these uh, rebel areas and where the rebels are, are looking to, to deepen their functioning as a, as a quasi-independent, autonomous, uh, you know, international entity. I mean, so this gets back to, uh, you know, some of the objections uh, or the misgivings that the Russians voice about the cross-border authorization generally, you know, is that, you know, this is a, a temporary and exceptional abridgment of uh, Syria's uh, sovereignty. You know, it's, uh, it's normal kind of uh, supervisory uh, authority over, uh, you know, the uh, UN aid response and its borders. Um, and so they, um, you know, they justify, I think they, they have made various, um, you know, variations on the argument, uh, since 2017 that, uh, you know, that the conditions on the ground that necessitated this original 2014 cross-border mandate, uh, have, uh, have changed, you know, that, the, that this is no longer just practically a necessity, um, but also, you know, that they are uh, they are keen to restore Damascus's uh, kind of full and normal sovereign control uh, over you know over the entirety of the country uh, to reassert uh, Syria's uh, territorial integrity, um, you know, and thus uh, uh, to avoid you know what they. Um, what they characterize as efforts uh, by, uh, you know, uh, by foreign powers that have supported the opposition or supported, uh, uh, you know, the um, uh, Kurdish-led forces in the Northeast uh, is to kind of uh, solidify the division of the country uh, and then its functional partition um, 
by means of this, uh, uh, you know, cross-border aid regime. Uh, so it looks like they are, you know, they are attempting to, with this, to, um, you know, to, to uh, like, reassert the, uh, you know, the, the, like the single, the integrity uh, of Syria under, uh, you know, the Syrian state's control, at least in part. So, Aaron, in the last uh, section of time we have before we we come to an end, tell us, take us to what happens after July 10th. And and I guess you you need to talk about both uh, both eventualities, whether this this uh, cross border regimen is is preserved for another six months or year, and then we're going to be right back here again, or if it's shut down. Well, I I'm for once I'm not deeply pessimistic about the outcome of the the vote in the UN. I think there are right reasons for Russia not to veto this. And I think the US knows that and the, you know, all the countries in the Security Council have some willingness to compromise this time around. Some of that is to do with the Biden administration being a new, uh, you know, having a new relationship to Russia. Some of that is, but most of it is, is about the situation in Syria where Russia doesn't necessarily want a huge crisis to erupt in the Northwest. It wants things in return. Sam mentioned them. Um, and it might also want to squeeze something out of Turkey in return for, for making this work um, for another period and then probably just keep this leverage and keep milking this issue as long as it can. But... Um, so, I mean, if the the vote happens, if, if there's a... Uh, an agreement of some sort on or before uh, July 10. I expect there to be a, a renewal of, uh, well, either six or 12 months, any period is possible, but, and then we'll return to this issue again. It will probably have to involve the cross border, sorry, the cross line uh, option in some form. Some form of convoy will have to, to move either, either within a set time frame or in a set uh, format or something. There will have to be some movement on that, I think. Uh, and the Russians are also asking a number of other things that are related to that, such as you know having better control of who gets the aid, who distributes the aid. And those issues are really, really sensitive for the opposition because that relates to the Assad regime's ability to collect intelligence on people in that area and you know perhaps also use that to put pressure on their relatives in governmental areas and things like that. So so it's it's very sensitive stuff. But the Russians want some movement on, on, on these things. And I think realistically, and as Sam pointed out in his piece, for for dawn, um, you know they'll they will get some of that because they do have a veto, and a veto is is it's a silver bullet. You cannot defeat the veto. Uh, if Russia is willing to use it, uh, they can win this. What's the point where this changes? I mean, this has been a uh, uh, you know much like the arrangement between the U.S. and the and the SDF or the PKK or. YPG uh, in in the Kurdish areas, it's a, a clearly temporary arrangement that is you know not feasible long term for geostrategic reasons, but which can go on for years and years and years. What's the uh, what's the tipping point where uh, this arrangement is going to have to change? Well, I think you know accidentally or through poor handling of negotiations like these, it could change prematurely. But otherwise, I think the, the, the clock ticking here in the background has to do with the Turkish-Russian relationship 
generally and specifically what they're, they've created in Syria, where they back different sides, but they're always in touch. They're negotiating on behalf of their, their Syrian partners, uh, and they are trying to sort of find arrangements that suit them both. And, you know, neither country is a stranger to frozen conflicts. You have Russia in Ukraine and Georgia and other places, and you have Turkey in, in uh, Cyprus, of course. So I don't think either of them is, you know, in a hurry to wind up Syria and have a clean end to this conflict, but they're also not in agreement on how they should proceed forward. And that's always going to be a sort of a push-pull process. And this issue is one of those sort of points of pressure for, for Russia in this case, because Turkey just wants to keep the status quo. Well, let, let me ask you, let me ask you another question. So, you know, when I like uh, uh, a comparable model here is the KRG, right? The Kurdish areas of Iraq, which existed uh, as a de facto, uh, certainly different zone than federal Iraq starting in 1991. And yes, you know, complicated different, different factors that permitted that. But ultimately, uh, there's lots of scenarios you can imagine where border access to these areas doesn't require UN permission and doesn't occur through UN mechanisms. So donor donor countries, including the US, that want to continue to send aid into uh, uh, HTS-controlled areas uh, or Kurdish areas for that matter, could do so through a different arrangement that no longer was a UN arrangement, and they wouldn't, and they then wouldn't also be sending that aid through UN mechanisms. Uh, that's a way that you know one could imagine this this uh, status quo persisting for five or ten more years instead of it at, at six to twelve month renewable intervals. Is there any movement towards that sort of recalibration of the status quo? I think there is movement in the sense that that's where the conflict is drifting, that that is the direction things are going. But there's not really a conscious, deliberate push in that direction, except from the, you know, the Turkish side is really pushing for that to happen, to have this kind of, you know, they'd love to keep the UN mechanism and so forth, but they just want this place to stay and be stable and not produce refugees and chaos and trouble for them. Um, and also have some leverage in Syria and blah, 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 many things. But But that's the... The, the the key issue there. Um, I, I think if if to have sort of a, a cleaner arrangement there that would allow the UN to get out of the feeding people business in Idlib, you would probably have to have a reduction of conflict that seems stable so that you can have rebuilding in these areas and we're it, given that so many of the people there are not from the area, they're displaced from other parts of Syria, just building homes for them. Uh, and just making the place livable, it will never be prosperous. It will always be something like Gaza or, you know, an abnormal place that isn't sustainable really without some form of, of aid uh, from the outside. But perhaps that can be arranged through Turkey. But Turkey is unwilling, uh, perhaps unable to shoulder that burden on its own at this point, perhaps not in the future, but that will require, I think, a a uh, a conflict that is not um, constantly uh, at risk of erupting, and that requires some sort of a more of a stable arrangement between Turkey and Russia, which may or may not require arrangements involving the U.S., the Northeast, many other things, Assad, this and that. So it's it, there's a lot of moving pieces, and I think it's it's going to be difficult, um, but it's not impossible. Although, I mean, I think if I could just add, I mean. 
No, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, I think that uh, a real concern, though, is that, you know, if you look towards some of these more, um, what are, you know, arguably more um, sustainable means uh, to deliver aid to these areas that do not, you know, hinge on these kind of, uh, these dramatic uh, uh, renewal votes every six months or 12, uh, or, uh, you know, every year, um, you know, I mean, it doesn't, it's not clear uh, that, that type of aid just can can meet this really concentrated humanitarian need in this area, right? This is like this ton of people, uh, and then they are jammed into this, uh, you know, this peripheral rural part of the country that was not meant to house this many people, right? So then, uh, without a, you know, without an aid response of the kind that the UN is capable of supporting and coordinating, then, uh, you know, it's not, it's not clear how you, um, how you feed these people. Yeah. And then how you keep this area just even minimally, uh, sustainable and stable. Yeah. I, I, I agree with that. I think, but I, I, I the, uh, like when Russia pushes now for cross line aid, that is aid coming from Damascus, uh, the UN's response has been that, you know, fine, we want that too. But even if we had all the permissions and all the, you know, facilitation we needed, that wouldn't be enough to cover the needs that would exist if we removed the cross-border response or the cross-border UN response. So, and, to, and to spell out, we do not trust that that kind of cross-line aid would be meaningful or, uh, or, or, Follow the rules and laws. I no, mean, we of have course. I mean, even a decade of, of of evidence that the that the Syrian government will block convoys, block medical supplies, exactly. not let things through. So it's a it's a fall. I mean, that's why I was describing the the cross line as as part of you know a Russian uh, and Damascus initiative to further you know squeeze and vice the opposition areas that they were unable to to defeat by by force. Yeah, I mean to clarify. This seems like it could be useful as a means to, you know, as a as a sop to the Russians, right? As like a symbolic uh, gesture towards Damascus's, uh, you know, towards Syria's uh, sovereignty and territorial integrity in a way that would, you know, satisfy the Russians sufficiently to uh, to kind of sensitize them to cross border renewal, right? But then there is no universe uh, in which cross border aid could you know, could uh, provide a comparable contribution to these areas uh, or could somehow replace uh, a, a cross-border. Um, just that it, practically that seems impossible. Well, and, and, and we're, we're almost out of time. We're at 40 minutes. But um, I do want to ask just as a sort of, uh, uh, as a sort of perspective on how this might unfold, um, to, to, Narrow but related questions. One, did the same amount of aid continue to flow as the numbers of crossings closed? Like, did they just move more and more of it into the one remaining crossing? And two, the crossings where cross-border aid was uh, no longer authorized, do they not continue to be busy, vibrant crossings in which lots of goods and people pass just uh, simply without UN authorization? Well, I think the uh, m- most of what travels through Bab Hawa and all the other crossings as well is not UN aid. It's not even aid, it's trade. Uh, and I think what people mostly live off in Idlib as well is trade or local, you know, agriculture or whatever. 
but the aid is needed to keep those people who are who do need uh, this to, to 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 help them survive. And it's not just food; it's it's a lot of different things. Um, and also, as as we mentioned before, it's also the the funding for institutions that keep people alive and keep society running, like hospitals and you know salaries for doctors and teachers and other things. So you will not have like a, a complete disappearance of food in Idlib on July 11. Uh, but you will have a massive, massive humanitarian crisis at some point after July 11, if there is no renewal of this resolution. Um, I think, you know, you, you can probably shift, um, you, you could certainly theoretically build a cross line response, a response from the government held areas that would, uh, replace this effectively in theory, but that would take time and it would take trust. And there is no trust. There's no one, no one at all trusting the Syrian government. I think this includes the Russians, which make, might, might make them hesitant, who trust the Syrian government to get that right to control the aid and then not immediately start abusing it, being on their best behavior until they get the right to control all of it and then immediately starting to play the aid card again. Um, and also the problem of trust exists between the United States and Russia. The, the Americans feel that they've been burnt time and time again by Russia in, uh, in Syria, whether it's chemical weapons or humanitarian issues or uh, ceasefire negotiations and so on. And I think the Russians feel the same way also probably. So this is really a, a big problem uh, because logically and just going by interests and, and desired outcomes, you could probably find something that might work, you know, over time with a little bit of pragmatism. But But there is not that trust, I think. Uh, last last question to you, Sam, and, and give us a short answer. Um, is this a uh, as a test of American interest and influence over what happens uh, in Syria or or in international diplomacy? What what can we surmise about our uh, about America's uh, uh, changing fortunes and uh, ability to steer events? No, I mean, I think that, you know, I, I think that the, the Biden administration seems to be taking the, uh, the correct tack to this. Um, you know, I mean, so far, uh, I think encouragingly, uh, you know, they have signaled that, uh, um, you know, alleviating humanitarian suffering, expanding, uh, you know, uh, preserving and expanding uh, aid access across the country is, you know, among their, their top serious priorities. Uh, they've obviously invested a lot of uh, energy and, uh, you know, and uh, attention to this issue in particular. Uh, and, um, and in a way that's uh, kind of contra, you know, what we've seen with uh, previous administrations and, you know, in fights for renewal, um, you know, it seems they seem to be leaning much more heavily on... Uh, on a the carrot rather than the stick, um, you know they they haven't uh, adopted a really kind of um, aggressive condemnatory uh, approach with the Russians on whose you know vote they uh, uh, whose consent uh, they ultimately you know depend for renewal. Um, instead, I mean I think that they are you know pointing to the evident uh, need in this area, and then I think at least implicitly, you know, holding out the, the possibility of, 
uh, further you know cooperation on kind of areas of mutual interest uh, in terms of meeting humanitarian needs in Syria. Um, and I think that that is, it seems like a, a recognition of how kind of functionally, you know, the, uh, the UN Security Council uh, works, uh, how, you know, what, what seems likely to be the, the best approach, in my view, uh, to secure renewal, just because, you know, you cannot, uh, you cannot browbeat the Russians into this. Right. I mean, like it, it is not effective. Uh, that has been proven before, uh, you know, and then uh, or, you know, if you uh, if you attempt to just kind of to dictate outcomes here, uh, you know, then the, the, the Russians, uh, they do not care, you know, or they I mean, they may uh, be additionally difficult just to uh, to spite you. Uh, it's just not functional. Sam, we're going to end it there. Um because it's been 45 minutes since we started this conversation and Aaron's baby has not uh, <laughs> has not woken up yet, but we don't want to try our luck. Yep. Uh, so this was this was great. Um, I'm Thanasi Kambanis. I've been talking with Sam Heller and Aaron Lund, I think across uh, like 16 hours of time zones. And it's 1 a.m. in Sweden where Aaron is. And uh, I think we should let him go to bed. Uh, you've been you've been listening to Order from Ashes Sam, Aaron thanks a lot for coming on yeah thanks thanks you've been listening to Order from Ashes the international affairs podcast from the Century Foundation if you've enjoyed what you heard please rate us and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts it'll make it easier for other listeners to find us and help us to keep producing these conversations. Thanks for listening. Till next time.